Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we have lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How would you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That ends the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. May bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, there are a handful of Jesus' sayings in the Gospels that are recorded for us in Scripture that literally are just chilling. One of the top three of them is found right here in the verses we just read. It's when he's addressing the unbelieving, stubbornly so unbelieving religious leaders of his day. As we've been seeing in this passage, Jesus is exposing their religiosity for the sham that it really is. He's seven times, I believe it is, he calls them hypocrites, which means play actor, phony, poser, fake. And then upon exposing them for what they really are, he says this chilling statement. I want you to hear this. He says, how will you escape being condemned to hell? I say it's the most chilling because when the world's one and only Savior in the world, the only one who can save you from your sins, asks you the question, how will you escape being condemned to hell? You're in some serious trouble. You're really in a bad way. And if that does not shake you to your core, there's not much hope left. See, Jesus had been reaching out to them. I want you to understand this in its context. He had been reaching out in love and in mercy and in compassion for three years of public ministry, doing miracles doing things that no, no mere human could possibly do. Healing the sick, giving sight to blind men who were born that way, some of them. Curing the lame. Understand this. Those who had, her, their legs were atrophied. They, they couldn't just get up and walk and Jesus would say, get up, take your mat and go home. They saw this right in front of their eyes. He had mercy 
on the poor. He preached the gospel, the good news to the poor. He had compassion, delivered poor sinners from the domination of the devil as he would cast out unclean spirits. Nobody else had the power to do these things. And yet Jesus did it, and he showed the heart of God, the good shepherd. He showed the love of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God. And yet, the more he showed the heart of God, his heart, the more entrenched in their unbelief they became, the more they hated him, and the more they couldn't wait to be rid of his presence. You have to understand, that's the context here. And even in this, what we need to see in this passage, even in this, the love of Jesus can be seen clearly as he's telling them plain, plainly, as plainly as he possibly can, that unless something drastically changes with them, unless they do a complete 180 in their lives, especially in their attitude and their posture toward him, there's going to be hell to pay. And in this case, it's literal. What we have to see here, and this is important, this is not hellfire and brimstone preaching. We all know the pastors that get up and every single Sunday all they do is talk about hell. They try to scare people or manipulate people. That's not what's going on here. Jesus isn't using scare tactic, tactics in order to manipulate people. We have to see here, and take this to heart, is he's simply telling, it, telling the truth. He's simply telling it like it is. And I often mention this. He's doing this not to scare them and us, but to prepare them. There's a big difference. I always think of the illustration, if you see somebody who's not paying attention, and it's like reading as they're walking across the street, and a Mack truck is on their way to hit them, Would you be like, um, excuse me, uh, uh, dear sir? Or would you be like, yo, dude, get out the way! You don't care if you look silly. You're going to jump up and down, do everything you possibly can to get their attention so they would get out of the way of danger. And the Pharisees, Jesus has tried to reach them in every human possible way. And now he's done. Now he's direct. And now he's going to tell them like it is. This, in one way, in one sense, this really is a last-ditch effort of the good shepherd who's not willing that any would perish to get through to them. And at the same time, we have to see this is ultimate judgment. God's old covenant people again and again have been stiff-necked. They've been stubborn. God sent them prophets and teachers, and they put them to death. And as we're going to see, what Jesus is getting ready to do. They're getting ready to crucify Jesus, but Jesus is saying, the real judgment here is not on me. The real judgment is on you. Jerusalem is about to get judged. And he's, of course, referring to A.D. 70 when the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is taken over by the Romans, and they fall with a great crash. Now, wait a minute. I know what you're thinking, because I think this too, sometimes. We're not religious Pharisees. <laughs> We're not Jewish religious leaders. So why are you going to preach this to us today? Can we just skip over this part? Get to the next part of Matthew's gospel? How, in other words, does this 
apply to us? Well, there are a number of level of applications. But I would say one of the primary ones and the angle I want to come, at, come through at today is this way. If you look earlier in chapter 3 when Jesus begins dealing with the religious leaders of his day, he starts by not talking to them, if you remember. He talks to his disciples and he talks to the crowds and he tells them what? He says, you have to do what they tell you to do because they sit in Moses' seat. So in other words, as far as they're teaching you the word of God, the Old Testament scriptures, you need to do what they say. But then you remember what he says? Do not do what they do because they do not practice what they preach. And so how this speaks to us today is, as we see this picture, and literally what I want you to see, I'm going to put this in a a way that you've probably never heard before, at least I've never preached it this way. Basically, I'm going to put it in these terms. How to make sure you stay on the road to hell. If you want to be sure that you're on the road to hell, follow these things. And these are the very things that Jesus points out about the Pharisees and warns them of, that if they do not change, repent, and come to him for life, that that's where they'll be headed. So, with no further ado, how to stay on the broad road that leads to destruction. And we're picking it up in the middle. If you want to um, go back and hear the other two sermons to hear the whole, this whole message, because it couldn't fit in one. But um, here are some of the things that, that you need to do if you want to stay on the road to hell. Four I'm going to point out this morning. First of all, be scrupulous about the minors and completely neglect the most important things of the word. So make sure, as Jesus said, you're straining out gnats, but don't worry about swallowing a camel. That's the first thing. Secondly, be concerned more about outward appearances than inward realities. Third, be unwilling to take ownership of your part of the problem. Blame it on everybody else. And last of all, be unwilling. And this is the real one. This is the, the clincher. The other, there's a cure for the other ones. This last one, there is no cure. Be unwilling to humbly flee to Christ for refuge and salvation. That was the death knell. That will guarantee it. So we're going to take a look at these. From God's word, Matthew gives us these Sayings of these words of Jesus. So let's look at the first one. Be scrupulous about the minors and completely neglect the most important things. We dealt with this somewhat last time, so I'm not going to take a long time on it, but I do want to uh, just say a few things about it. Look at verses 23 to 24 again. Put it fresh in your mind. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. You want to ensure that you're walking the same road as the unbelieving Pharisees of Jesus' day? Be sure then that you put all of your energy into the minor aspects of God's Old Testament law and requirements and completely neglect the vital ones the weightier matters, the matters that are at the heart of all true religion, the ones that matter most. So go ahead, make sure you go in your garden, and I know all about this, and make sure you get a tithe of your basil, of your parsley, and of your oregano. 
But don't lift a finger to show mercy to your neighbor who hasn't eaten a meal in days. Or is in danger of getting kicked out in the streets in the winter because they can't scrape together enough money to pay their bills. Whatever you do, don't go out of your way to help anybody else that, that is facing oppression and injustice. Make sure you just stay home and care about yourself. The irony of this, too, is when you think of, to me, uh, uh, Eric Alexander brought this to my attention, a great preacher from Scotland. When you think about your spices, I'm giving my spices away. They're so worth nothing in the summer, if you, if you realize that. I mean, I have so much basil coming out of my nose and, and my parsley. And sure, they're so scrupulous about that little area, aren't they? The things that don't matter. But you don't see them giving away their best or dealing with the heavier, bigger things. Maybe it even looks more like this. As I'm studying, I was thinking more like this. Think of it in our day a little bit. I tried to make this a little contemporary. You tithe with great scrupulousness. Although probably in our church we use some of that. No, just, just, I'm just probably you tithe with great scrupulousness. You attend church regularly. Maybe you even sing in the choir. But listen. But maybe at work you underpay your employees. Maybe you treat others who are different skin color than you with, with no respect simply because they have, they're of a different skin color. And maybe you have no problem overlooking God's call to be faithful. But what's interesting here, and I want us to see this, this is powerful. Jesus right away prevents us from saying, oh, so then those things don't matter at all. All that matters is that I'm kind and I'm merciful and I care about justice. I don't really need to go to church. I don't really need to tithe. Oh, that stuff is all legalism. No, what does Jesus say here? He says, you should have practiced the former. In other words, Jesus is saying, you still need to tithe. God does call you to tithe. But you shouldn't have neglected the more important, heavier stuff. You know, it's illustration. What are you putting first in your life? What's the tenor of your life? What are you focused on? The Pharisees were not focused on the things that matter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And Jesus uses one of the most absurd illustrations. Who, who says uh, that, that Jesus wasn't a great preacher and that, that he didn't use illustrations and even some tongue-in-cheek humor at times? I mean, think about this picture. I mean, none of us really like, I don't know about you, but you ever have like, when you drink, my wife likes to eat outside a lot and stuff like that. You, know, you have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and you turn your head for one second, then you look in it, and you, you know, there's like a mosquito in it, or one of those no we call them, or gnats. You're like, man, that's nasty. So nobody enjoys that. But the irony of it, imagine is you're so making sure you don't have that one little speck. I mean, you know, God forbid you actually swallow one. You know, that one little speck, but at the same time, you let... The, in those days, the biggest known animal in the desert there, you let a, a huge camel, think about it, the, the, the hoof, the nose, and those big hump, you swallow the thing whole. That's how, Jesus is saying, that's how ridiculous your life is. Your lack of focus. More important, where your heart is, which you're, you're gonna, he's going to talk about in a moment. 
Michael Green puts it this way. They commit monstrous, camel-sized sins while taking every precaution against swallowing an unclean gnat to bring ceremonial impurity to their drink. They strain out a minor impurity and swallow a major one. Blind guides indeed. It'll never do to follow them. Now listen, I want to say one thing about us as a congregation. Certainly, as a New City Fellowship, uh, we're in line of a great tradition that, and, and uh, we set our core values, our vision statement, our philosophy of ministry to reflect the culture that God has, has sent us to, particularly an urban center, a city. And so our church is going to have a different flavor than if you go to a, a suburban church where every, every person is homogeneous, they're all from the same culture, all from the same socioeconomic group, and, and there's no criticism there. We're just going to look different. So not every church has to have the same music style or aspire to it. We're still aspiring. Nobody, we don't have to have the same preaching style in your face. Not the same evangelistic method or education model. Every church can be different in that area. But I'll tell you what. If you call yourself a church of Jesus Christ, then you better be doing justly. You better be loving mercy. And you better be walking humbly with your God. It's not an option. Caring about justice for the oppressed is not a luxury or a pet project. Helping widows and orphans in their distress is not something we kind of do to be do-gooders on the side. What does James say? That's what true religion is. And we got to make sure that our emphasis is not on the wrong syllable. Right? So if you want to be sure to be on the road that leads to destruction, focus on the minors and neglect the majors of God's word. Secondly, be concerned more about outward appearance than inward realities. Look at verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. Clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. It is the height of hypocritical False spirituality. Listen, this is, the, this is the one that convicted me the most out of all of them. It's the height of hypocritical false spirituality. Put all of your energy to looking good before others. To put up a good outward appearance and to allow greed and self-indulgence to, rant, to run rampant and unhindered in your heart. That's by definition what hypocrite is. Outside, you look clean. You, you, look, you look smooth. You look maybe like a, a spiritual giant. But inside you're filthy, you're disgusting. You're like a cesspool. See, they didn't tend to the inside, to the heart, to the inner man. In private, when they were alone, they fed their lusts. They secretly indulged in all kinds of selfish indulgence. Robert Redford, the actor, one day was uh, walking through a hotel lobby. And a woman saw him and followed him to the elevator. And she yelled out, are you the real Robert Redford? As the doors of the elevator closed, he replied, only when I'm alone. 
It's humorous. But it's true. Who are you when you're alone? Who are you when there's no one to impress? When there's no one to put on a facade or try to keep off your back or whatever it is or to impress? Who are you when only God sees? That's really what's important in life. It doesn't matter how much you try to clean the outside. What's on the inside? Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they're all about outward show. Not about inward glow, as it were. They're all about looking good, but not really being good. All about looking like leaders of men, when all the, all the while they're really devourers of men. Because they were leading people into the same pit that they were going into. And I want to say this, this, this is free, this is bonus material. Yeah, I'm going to give this to you for free. Kind of like the DVD at the end, you get some extra bonus stuff. But how this applies to us, I believe, there's a number of ways to apply, but this way and specifically, brothers and sisters, we, none of us here, are perfectly what we are on the outside match what's on the inside. That's, none of us here can claim that. Only Jesus can. But I think we need to heed this warning and be careful and be aware of how we could slowly and surely that that chasm can grow and grow and grow. And I want to give you just a little piece of biblical advice that I need to take as well. How often we spend time on social media. We spend time watching Hollywood movies and television. We spend time listening to even maybe non-Christian friends who have all kinds of advice that all contradicts themselves. But when we're alone, we're at home. Do we make time to fill ourselves with the word of Christ? Paul tells us to, right? Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Because listen, how else are you going to be a person who realizes that godliness with contentment is great gain unless you're hearing God speak into your life? Because the world tells you, you know, we just talked about this before, Dave and I, um, was, it, um, was it Howard Hughes was asked? How much uh, more will be enough? Rockefeller. How much more money will be enough? He says, just a little bit more. (laughs) How can a young man keep his way clean? By taking heed according to your word. Psalm 119. I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against thee. I need to hear God's perspective. I need to hear his view. Because his way is the true way. It's the truth. And sometimes it hurts. Other times it brings complete joy. And usually it's a little bit of both. Right? Some joyful pain. That was free. But in the case of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, Jesus uses this illustration. I'll just talk about this and we'll go into our third point. He says they are white, they're like whitewashed tombs. Now, in those days, they would whitewash the tombs so that they would look really beautiful on the outside. And scholars believe for some, one of the reasons they do this is so that um, folks wouldn't be in danger of being ceremonially unclean and touch something uh, unawares, knowing that it was a dead person was in there, because that would be unclean. So they would make it nice and clean and white. 
But the irony, Jesus says, no matter how well you dress that coffin up, guess what it's, it's covering up? Rotting bones. On the inside, it's putrid. It stinks. He says, that's you. Strong language. He's saying, that's you. So to ensure that you're on the path of these ancient hypocrites, keep up appearances at all costs, but don't do serious business with God and come to him for deep cleansing within where it really matters. Be more concerned about appearing to be righteous before others than actually before God being righteous, both in standing and more and more in sanctification sense in practice. Thirdly, and this was a long one, so I'm going to try to make it a little more succinct. I won't comment on every single verse, but I'm going to try to get the gist of it. The third one is be unwilling to take ownership of your, even your part of the problem. Listen, I'll, let me say this and then we'll jump into it. Um, I do do marriage counseling and I don't know how I ended up getting myself into that. I never as a young man thought, oh, that's going to be one of my callings and I'm going to be gifted at that. But somehow the Lord kept bringing couples to me and somehow he would use me. And I ended up even when I was working on my doctorate, uh, focusing on that area a little bit. And so somehow he's, he uses uh, me and my weakness. But one of the things I notice in marriage counseling is how often, and you all I'm sure are aware of this, couples will come to me in, and they have in their mind what they're really coming to me for is, oh, if he'll just fix my partner. I can't wait until he side. When he finds out what he or she did, then he's going to side with me, and boy, we're going to, then my, my marriage is going to be great because he's going to, it's all, it's all their fault, and it's going to be, you know, that's usually what happens. And one of the things I learned in my studies and, 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 and just in the counseling room is how much better a marriage works and how much healthier a marriage works when each person at least takes ownership of us, even a small part of the problem. Even if one person is more at fault, it's very, very, extremely, extremely rare that the other person has no culpability. What does this have to do with this? Well, the Pharisees had a way of trying to distance themselves from their own history, from their own people. They said, that they, they actually, this is the crazy part, they would actually put up monuments to the prophets and dress them up in statues, you know, and just say, oh, you know, and make it all look beautiful as an honor to the prophets. And they would even say, and this is where Jesus really gives them a zinger, they would even say, if we lived back in the day of our forefathers, we would have never killed the prophets. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. He says, so you convict yourself. You indict yourself. You admit before everybody here publicly that you are the descendants of those who killed the prophets. You get that? He said, you're the murderers of the prophets. So another way to stay on the road that leads to destruction is whatever you do, distance yourself from having any part of any corporate sin and deny it and run from it instead of taking your share, admitting about your share as small as it, or big as it may be in corporate crimes. And this is what I mean. Um, I've been dealing on my presbytery. I'm part of a committee that is dealing with a resolution. This is, listen, this is good stuff. Dealing with a resolution as a denomination Admitting and repenting for the fact that during the civil rights movement, 
the Presbyterian Church in America did little or nothing to help our brothers and sisters, um, our black brothers and sisters who were being um, persecuted. We did nothing. And so what, we're, what we are doing is we are acknowledging, we're coming up with a statement, not only a statement, but we're, looking at, we're passing it down to presbyteries and to our churches. How can we remedy this case? How can we show repentance? How can we show love to our brothers and sisters who have been sinned against? And there are some who feel, well, I wasn't there. I don't have any responsibility in this. Listen, my people were, were making pizza in, in, on a boat in Italy at this time. But you know why I need to take some ownership in it? Because when I became a Christian, I became a member of the Presbyterian Church in America. And I am corporately a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. So I, in all humility, accept the fact that I am part of a denomination that sinned in this area. I'm not going to run from that fact. We were wrong. We should have spoke up. We should have said, what are you, out of your minds? We're all made in the image of God. Why would they have a different bathroom? Why can't they sit in the front of the bus? What are you talking about? But we didn't. Listen, the most powerful example of this on the positive, the Pharisees are in the negative. Because here's the interesting thing. They had the opportunity to come to Jesus and say, we have sinned. Us and our fathers have sinned. Have mercy on us. But they didn't do that. Daniel, chapter 9 of his book. Again, for time's sake, I'm going to summarize very quickly. Um, one of the interesting things about Daniel, there's two people in the Old Testament, at least two, that I'm always like, wow, the Bible doesn't like show us any of their sins. The only way I know we know they're sinners is because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Otherwise, you look at Daniel, man, he was a godly man, a godly prophet. And yet, when it comes time to repent, uh, to uh, confess the sin of Israel, he confesses this way in Daniel 9. You can look it up later, but I'm just going to give you the gist of it. He says, O Lord, we have sinned. He says, O Lord, we have been wicked. Lord, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. He doesn't distance himself. O Lord, your people have sinned. He says, Lord, we have. For your namesake, show mercy. So instead of humbling themselves and crying out for mercy, acknowledging the sin of the fathers and seeking forgiveness and restoration, they protest. They say, not us. We would never do such a thing. Here's the real irony. As they're saying that, they're plotting to do what? To kill Jesus. You get the irony? We would never do such a thing. Kill him. So Jesus goes on to say these chilling words. Look at verse 32. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. 
And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you this, the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Jesus had their number. And if you want to see this um, in history, take a look at the book of Acts. We see how the religious leaders chased down the apostles. They put some of them to death. As a matter of fact, 10 of the 12 died for their faith. One was a betrayer, and the other one was the only one who lived to like a ripe old age, the apostle John. He lived to like around 100 So now all of that disobedience is coming upon their head of all those generations, all those years. But I want us to see this, and then just one more point, we close for the morning. Notice what Jesus says here, you could miss this. He says, therefore, I am sending you prophets. Why is that anything out of the ordinary? Who is he identifying himself as? God, he's saying, I will send prophets. And in the end, that's the only thing they could find to to charge him with. He claims to be God. Jesus is like, and? I'm not seeing the problem here. Unlike you, you claim to be one thing, you're something totally other. I can't help if I said I wasn't, I'd be lying. So, Third thing to do to stay on the path that leads to destruction. Distance yourself from any sin that you have any part in. Last of all, be unwilling to humbly flee to Christ for refuge and salvation. Let me just read the last few verses and then we'll wrap it up. Verses 37 to 39 where we see the heart of Jesus and we see the pain of Jesus. And by the way, when you see hellfire and brimstone preachers kind of preaching almost with a smile on their face or if they're, they're uh, kind of getting into it and making jokes. That's not the way Jesus talked about hell, is it? Jesus talked about hell with a broken heart, with weeping. Not with at all any delight. Look at verse 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how, I, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Let me stop there for a moment. What is he saying? He's saying, you're doing it to yourselves. And it's breaking my heart. Listen, the Son of God says, I longed to bring you in. You were unwilling. And isn't that true as we share the love of God with maybe our loved ones, with friends, with people for many years we've been praying for? And so often they try to blame us for different things or blame other people. And what breaks our hearts for them is that they are the ones who are doing it to themselves. They are refusing to humble themselves and to come to the only one who could free them from their sins. Past, present, and future. The only refuge and salvation for the coming, the wrath that is coming. So ultimately, their, their ultimate sin was rejection of the only one who could rescue them 
from the wrath to come. Here's the thing. Jesus is the only one who can save us from this fate. Only he can turn prideful hypocrites into humble practitioners of his gospel. Only he can deliver us from cold, formal, legalistic religion and lead us into vital, heartfelt relationship with the living God. And only he can cleanse us from our own sins and the sins of our forefathers and secure us a place with him in glory for eternity. And listen, he's the only hope for our friends, for our neighbors, for our relatives, as well as for ourselves. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. You want to start the new year well? Let's get on our face in repentance for the areas in our lives that kind of line up with the Pharisees. But especially for being ashamed of the one who was willing to take our shame. He was the only one that could do it. And he did it. In saying these things and even having to pass judgment, Jesus is walking to a hill called Golgotha where he's about to willingly lay down his life for his sheep. And that same message back then is the same message we preach today. Repent and believe the good news. Friends, why would you die when you could live eternally by humbling yourself and receiving the free gift that only he can bring? May you have a new year that you take these words of Jesus seriously and see him make beauty out of ashes in your life to turn you from a selfish maybe self-righteous prig to a selfless servant of the king of kings bringing life life and health and peace and mercy and overcoming evil with good may it be so come lord jesus let's pray father we thank you even for these strong words for these hard words We thank you for all of your word, from Genesis to Revelation. It's your love letter to us, your people. Forgive us for shirking the responsibility of sharing it with others, all of it, not just the portions that we like or that feel comfortable. Father, help us to warn those who we see are about to get hit by the Mack truck, as it were. Father, please forgive us for worrying more about not looking good, than we are about other souls and lives. Father, we thank you for the community you are already forming here. But we pray that you begin with us so that as people are added more and more to our number, Lord, you would be building on a good foundation of those who humbly repent and in brokenness mourn over our sins and turn from them and bring them to you for forgiveness and cleansing. God, make us a people of your book, a people of prayer, and a people who, when we're alone, are filling ourselves with good things. We ask it for your glory and for the salvation of many, Lord. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
Sing with me in response the hymn, Jesus with your church abide.